Welcome to episode 162 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, our family did something that exercised our risk muscle and prepared us for some interesting side trails on autumn and spring backpacking trips. We went mushroom hunting without someone holding our hand this time. Then we'll review a sturdy piece of outdoor gear that will give you a place to organize mushrooms, do a little outdoor sketching, and maybe some meal prep. All this and that's about it today on the first 40 miles. Last week's episode, number 161, was all about our first mushroom hunting trip with the Oregon Mycological Society. We learned a ton on that trip, but after we got home from the trip, we knew that we wanted to get out with our family as soon as possible to see if what we'd learned was really going to stick. The question in my mind was, okay, we went out with the Mycological Society, we identified some chanterelles, we identified some rusulas, we identified some cat's tongues, all of those are edible. Now, if we go out on our own, will we be able to identify those mushrooms confidently enough to bring them home and cook them up for dinner? And we knew if we waited too long, we might lose that fresh knowledge. And the nerve. It takes a little bit of nerve to go mushroom hunting. So we went out with the Oregon Mycological Society on a Tuesday, I think, and we went out with our family that Saturday. We got right to it. Yeah, and in between, I went to the library and checked out three mushroom hunting books, and we were online looking at pictures and trying to make sure that we remembered correctly and that we could identify and re-identify. And it was our whole family that was just mushroom crazy for a few days. And so we went to our family backpacking spot, the one that we've talked about several times. We thought, we've got to be able to find mushrooms there. Like That will help us to get to know that area just that much better, to know what kinds of mushrooms are in our family backpacking spot, where they grow, how to find them. So that's where we went, out to the family backpacking spot. We went up the trail about a half mile, I think, and we saw where the trail kind of went around the end of a ridge and there were Douglas fir trees growing on the ridge. And our goal was to find chanterelle mushrooms. Of course, we'd be happy with other stuff that we could identify too, but we knew, because we'd learned from the Oregon Mycological Society trip, that chanterelles grow in the soil symbiotically with Douglas fir trees. So that's where we stopped, kind of set up shop, and started hunting. And you know what? I think mushroom hunting is one of those things that can be addictive. That's why people get into it and have societies for it and everything. <laughs> really, and not because they're psychedelic, but because of the idea of an unpredictable variable reward. That's how addictive games work, like gambling, where you go do it and do it and do it, and you don't know when you'll get a reward and you don't know how big the reward will be. But they come just often enough and just randomly enough to keep you going, looking for that next hit. 
That's what it's like with mushroom hunting. That's so true. It's funny because when we went out with the Oregon Mycological Society, walking from our car to the spot where everyone was, Paul helped us to find some chanterelles. So within the first few minutes, we had a big hit. We had a big win. And we were like, oh, my goodness, we can do this. This is so cool. And we actually didn't find much more that afternoon as we continued to search. And maybe because there were so many people there searching, the area may have been a little picked over. If we had gone to like a more remote spot, we may have had more success. But the same exact thing happened when we went out with our family. My daughter and I walked up this hill and walked through some cedar trees, which we knew we wouldn't find much that we could identify there. Um, and we walked up to kind of the crest of the hill where there was a stand of Douglas firs. She looked down and said, is this what a chanterelle looks like? And there were four perfect chanterelles there. <laughs> it was incredible. And she picked them and we were like, yeah, we're awesome. We're so cool. <laughs> That was great. And I, on the other hand, looked for at least a half hour, maybe longer, before I found my very first chanterelle, one lone chanterelle. I looked all around near that chanterelle, and there was no more chanterelles, just the one. And then I think about 10 minutes later, I found one more chanterelle <laughs> by itself. Yeah, and our boys found something that looked like a white chanterelle. So... They had success as well. Um, you know, with our daughter getting that early big find, she asked me later on if um, there was any mushroom hunting in Idaho because she's thinking about going to school in Idaho. And I thought, oh, she's hooked. This is exciting. <laughs> um, and, you know, mushroom hunting is addictive and you're looking for something that you can't find in the grocery store. So it's rare. It's kind of got this... Uh, I don't know. It's super fancy food, you know. Um, and then another thing that's interesting about mushrooms is that people can be really secretive about their mushroom hunting spots. Especially if they found some matsutakis somewhere. Yeah. And they may be so secretive that they won't even tell their family where this clump of matsutakis is. Right. They'll put it in their will. <laughs> so after they die... Their family gets to know where to find those matsutakis. Right. Yeah, we heard some funny stories from uh, our adventure with the Oregon Mycological Society of people hiding in decayed trees if they hear other mushroom hunters coming to uh, hide their location so people won't discover that this is a good mushroom hunting spot. And, you know, along with the addictiveness of mushroom hunting, you get those small wins along the way, the small payouts in the form of cat's tongues. Oh, they're so cute. The little white translucent ones that look like uh, gummy candies. Yeah. They grow on wood. They're completely clear and they taste like water. They're completely edible too, which blew me away. I had no idea. Yeah. And you find these every few minutes. So as you're looking for, you know, chanterelles or matsutakis, well, along the way, you can pick a few of these cat's tongues and sort of snack on them. Yeah, those ones you can eat raw, the cat's tongues. I don't know the Latin name for them, but yeah, they're, they taste like you're eating a tongue. It's like <laughs> with the flavor of water. It's a really interesting mushroom. Yeah, they are a fungus, but I don't think they're a mushroom oh. technically. Oh, oh boy, we have so much to learn. <laughs> 
Well, we recorded a little bit of audio from our family mushroom hunting trip. Here's what the family had to say. Today we came out to our family backpacking spot to test out our mushroom hunting skills. How did we do, guys? We found a lot of uh, cat tongues. Yeah, can you describe what cat's tongues are or cat tongue? So, and I'm sure they have lots of different names, too. Nature's gelatin. <laughs> so, cat's tongues are slightly clear, kind of whitish. They grow on, like, dead sticks or logs. And uh, they look like a cat's tongue, and they feel like it, too. And they're also 98% water. <laughs> <laughs> but we heard that you can soak them in juice, and they'll kind of soak up the flavor of the juice. <laughs> Does anyone else find anything interesting? I found a club coral. A club coral? Tell us about that. I found two of them. The little one was about the size of my finger and my pinky. And the big one was about the size... Probably about as big as a small cucumber. <laughs> Looking around. Yeah, as, as big as, a, as one of those small cucumbers. It's called the flat top coral. Oh, not the club coral? I... wait... Flat top forgot, club wait, coral. This one says flat top coral. Yeah, it says it's called the flat top coral. Oh, okay. And do you remember Leah talking about that one when we went to the Oregon Mycological Society meeting? They're sweet. A sweet mushroom? What do you think? Um, yeah, that would be weird. It could be fun <laughs> though. <laughs> there are multiple names for some mushrooms, so the, it could be the same mushroom and be called club coral or golden club coral and it's still the same mushroom. Yeah, and one of the interesting things we learned is that even the Latin names can change. So being able to identify a mushroom is really important. Even though the name might change, you'll still be able to identify it. Then you can find it every time because you'll be so familiar with it. Some mushrooms have been reclassified over the years where they they thought it was in one genus or species and then they realize it's actually in a different genus and so the, the the entire latin name for the mushroom gets changed what other successes did we have today i was surprised by how many mushrooms we actually got i thought we would get a couple maybe five or six uh, that's a few not a couple but we turned out to have more than 20 mostly cat tongue but still they're good mushrooms well, we easily found a lot of Rusula. Some of them are getting kind of old, but you hit the jackpot. Actually, it was Hannah that hit the jackpot, our 17-year-old, and she, maybe after about three to five minutes of hiking up this hill that we were going to be looking on, uh, we got into a stand of Douglas firs, and she looked down and said, uh, is this what a chanterelle looks like? And I couldn't believe it. She'd found four beautiful fresh chanterelles right there in the dirt the duff back to the chanterelles i'm the seventh grader and i found the first chanterelle very proud of it it was actually not the normal species of chanterelle that everyone else found it was i believe a white chanterelle and what's special about the white chanterelle uh, it's white instead of orange I bet it's more rare than the golden chanterelle. I guess our, our little pamphlet here says both the golden and the white are very... Um, Prized? Yeah, they're <laughs> choice. Choice is the word they use here. Yeah, so they're, they're very good. Not only edible, but really good. Yeah, just uh, two different 
colors. All right, well, we'll try it out tonight for sure. What I find most interesting about mushrooms is that it's not a plant and it's not an animal. Something that I think is really cool about mushroom hunting is that most of these mushrooms you can't find in the store. They only have, like, portobellas or something like that in the store. But you can get, like, chanterelles and cat tongues out in the forest, and the store doesn't have those. Is this something you guys would like to do again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, and we can easily incorporate it into fall backpacking trips, and then I guess spring backpacking trips, because there's a few mushrooms that are more prominent in the spring. And we, we can just do it while we're out on a trip. We set up camp and start looking around, and you could add a couple mushrooms to your dinner. Definitely. This sounds like a new family favorite activity. And I love the idea of adding it to a backpacking trip. For today's top five list, we actually have a top six list, and we're going to share the top six things that we're glad we brought with us out on this family mushrooming trip. Let's start with Josh. Well, I'm glad that we brought rigid containers to hold our mushrooms. We also brought some kind of sacks, but the mushrooms just get all squished and mushy inside those sacks. Also, mushrooms need to be able to breathe. So when we went out a few days ago with the Oregon Mycological Society, a lot of those people had wicker baskets. It was so cute. <laughs> and that's ideal because they're rigid and they breathe. But even on a backpacking trip, if you don't have a wicker basket, you know, we just brought along some little plastic containers that had our lunch in them, but we pulled the lunch food out and had the container for collecting mushrooms. And that just worked a lot better than anything that is soft-sided that would cause them to all mush up with each other or even an enclosed container. So we've just left the lids off so the mushrooms can breathe in the container. I'm glad that I brought my radio with me. Your ham radio? Yes, because I was able to communicate with everyone else who brought their ham radios too. And so then we were able to figure out where we set up camp and uh, where everyone was and if they still wanted to keep collecting mushrooms or if they wanted to come back to camp. Yeah, I totally agree. Having a way to communicate was so helpful. We all went wandering off in different directions, looking at the ground as we went. And so then when you finally stop looking at the ground and you look up, you realize that you have no idea where you or anyone else is. So that's why it was especially helpful for mushroom hunting compared to maybe just going on a hike. I think I was really glad that I brought disposable gloves. Yeah, I like the idea of disposable gloves. Lightweight and um, reusable for sure if you're just mushroom hunting. I'm really glad that we brought the books for identification because while I was um, going along the hill I would find things that were memorable and looked different from the classic brown mushroom and I remembered it when I got back to our base I was able to look it up and see that it was something I could actually eat. I'm glad that I brought the little table. I'm glad that we brought that because that's where we put all of our mushrooms at the end. So this is the Helinox table, and you're right, it is a little bit heavier, heavier than our other table by Cascade Wild. But um, yeah, this one sits up higher off the ground and it's where we put all of our mushrooms when we laid them all out. And I'm really glad that we brought a little pastry brush. It's lightweight and it helps you clean off your mushrooms, which are usually covered in dirt and pine needles and bugs and whatever else. It helps you clean them off so they don't dirty up the other mushrooms that you've collected. 
it is really hard to get dirt out of mushroom gills. So if you can get the dirt off before you put the mushroom in, then your mushrooms will stay a lot cleaner and uh, they'll be easier to prepare when you're ready to eat them. For today's Summit Gear Review, we'll be reviewing the Helinox Table 1 Hardtop. The Helinox Table 1 Hardtop is a folding hardtop camp table. So it has a polyester top that kind of feels like canvas, and when you pop that off, it rolls and kind of folds up for storage. And then the legs all have shock cord and are made of high quality aluminum. So it ends up being, for the size and for the durability, a fairly lightweight table. For utility, the table sets up pretty quickly. The crossbars that keep the table stable are all shock corded, so you just kind of shake it and they all pop together. And then to keep the tabletop stable, there are two aluminum bars that go underneath the table that clip in, and then that clips into the legs of the table. And then the whole table comes with a carrying sack. For mass, the table weighs a little over two pounds, and when the table is all put together, it's 24 inches by 16 inches by 15 and a half inches. And then when it's all folded up, it's about 15 and a half inches by five inches by four and a half inches. When the table is fully assembled, it sits at about 16 inches height, which means if you're sitting on the ground, you can comfortably use the table. It's just that perfect height. And then the table is big enough where you could have someone on each end of the table and still have enough room to write in a journal or to sketch or just to have dinner. So when it's all folded up and put away, I'm imagining it's about the size of a, a little bit bigger than a 4x4 post that's uh, 16 inches long, and maybe not quite as heavy as a 4x4 post that's 16 inches long, but about right. that size, just a little bit bigger. Yeah, I was thinking smaller than a Pomeranian, larger than a Chihuahua. Okay. That range. <laughs> and I can't even think of a food that's the size. Let me see. A couple of loaves of bread. Yeah, a couple of loaves of... Uh... End to end. Yeah, exactly. In episode 126, we reviewed another backpacking table. That was the Cascade Wild backpacking table. By comparison, that table is much smaller. It's only 12 inches long and 7.5 and inches wide, but it weighs only 2.3 ounces. Yeah, and this one is over 2 pounds. So you're definitely making some weight trade-offs with this table, but I think you get the benefit of greater stability and more counter space. It's much larger, it's higher off the ground, and a more sturdy... It's going to hold more weight. Now, it's not going to hold you sitting on it, not that much weight, but it will hold uh, quite a bit more weight than the super ultralight Cascade Wild table. So yeah, it just depends on your needs. If you need just a small spot that's very lightweight, very compact, and very inexpensive, then check out the Cascade Wild table that we reviewed in episode 126. If you want a little bit larger backpacking table that's still quite light and compact for its size, then... The Helinox Table 1 is a great option. For maintenance, the table does require a little bit of setup, which takes about a minute. You can't put hot things on top, so don't plan on using your stove on this table. Uh, but the table is sturdy and stable. For investment, the table is $140. And for trial, this is something that we brought with us on our family mushrooming trip. It's actually something that our youngest child packed because he was so excited to lay out all the mushrooms that we found, which we did. We used this table to set out everything. It looked very scientific. 
really cool. It did with that black surface. The the mushrooms really stand out against the black surface, made it really easy <laughs> to identify them. Right. And I would say it is borderline on backpackable weight. It just comes down to a matter of personal preference, how important a table is to you, and if you're willing to pack the two pounds of table weight. And like I said, it's great for journaling, sketching. If you're going to be doing a trip that has a lot of food prep, then this table is going to get the food off the ground. You'll still need a cutting board uh, because you don't want to let the food juices soak into the tabletop, but it'll make food prep a little bit easier. And I would say this table is probably best for day trips or for camping, but still it's on that borderline that I really do think if it's a priority, um, it's light enough that you could take it backpacking. Well, people carry camp chairs that are this size and weight, and sometimes those go on backpacking trips. Right. Especially with our family. Mm -hmm. One of our kids always has the Crazy Creek camp chairs packed, no matter what the trip. Yeah, so we'll have a link to the Helinox Table 1 hardtop in today's show notes, and you'll find those at thefirst40miles.com slash 162. I wanted to take a second mention, we just added a page to our website, and it's a list of all the gear reviews that we've done on the Summit Gear Review. Head over to thefirst40miles.com slash gear, and you get the full list there with links to the reviews, also links to the manufacturer's website for the product. And if you want to look for that product on Amazon, we've got a link there too. So that's thefirst40miles.com slash gear. For today's backpack hack of the week, let me see if I can say this right. Vollkornbrot. Ooh, nice. Our German listeners can let you know if you got it right. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Vollkornbrot is whole grain rye bread. This fall, we hosted a German exchange student, and her and the other students were talking about how squishy American bread is. And they made this little hand gesture where it looked like they were poking something. They said, it's, it's so fluffy. And that's how American bread is. But it's not how German bread is. They have very dense bread that's not squishy and fluffy like American bread. And squishy, fluffy American bread is a bad idea on a backpacking trip because it gets squished and it doesn't refluff. That's why this whole grain rye bread is so great, because you can slice it thinly and it doesn't squish. It's squish proof. It's amazing. And it's very easy to make. This recipe is in Trail Grazing, which is our new cookbook. 40 High Energy Snacks to Fuel Your Adventures. And the secret to this bread really is the rye flour. So don't try and substitute your gluten-free flour or your white bread flour. It's got to be dark rye flour. So you'll need four cups of dark rye flour, two cups of warm water, one teaspoon of yeast, one teaspoon of salt, a cup of raw sunflower seeds, and a couple tablespoons of millet, if you happen to use millet. It's kind of a rare ingredient. If you can find millet, great. It'll add crunch, and I think you'll love it. When you're making bread, usually you put the yeast and water together first to activate the yeast, so do that and then add all of the rest of the ingredients a few minutes later, and then mix it. And you can either use the dough hook attachment or the 
cookie dough batter beater attachment, whatever. It doesn't really matter because this dough is different than your normal bread dough. It's lowering gluten and it comes together differently. So you'll just want to mix up the dough until everything is all combined and then take that dough and place it in a parchment lined loaf pan or you could even do like a free form loaf on a parchment lined baking sheet. Cover it with a piece of plastic wrap and let it sit for one hour in a warmish place. After it's risen for one hour, the loaf will be slightly puffy. It will look nothing like a whole wheat loaf. So if you're used to baking whole wheat bread, this will maybe throw you off a little bit. It won't look like whole wheat bread. It won't have that domed top. It's okay. Go ahead and bake the loaf at 350 degrees for one hour. Remove it from the oven, and after the bread is cooled, you'll be able to slice it up and either eat it or freeze it for later. And what I love about this whole grain rye bread is that it's healthful, it's long lasting, it's durable, it's dense, it's high fiber, it's got a strong rye flavor, which I love. You can put add-ins into the bread, like those sunflower seeds and millet, which just give it a little more chew and texture. And it's very forgiving. So even if you feel like you've messed up or forgotten a step or you've botched the batch, it will still be delicious. So speaking of add-ins, do you think you could put in chopped up mushrooms? That's too weird. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you just crossed a line, buddy. No, I don't know. I guess you could. Well, they have a cool flavor. Yeah, they cool do. That cool kind of savory umami flavor. Right. That would be good maybe with some like uh, sage and thyme. Yeah. Make it a real savory bread. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and with shredded cheese maybe mixed oh. into the loaf. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, yeah. Well, this recipe for Volkorn Brat... Sorry, I'm saying it the English way, I guess. <laughs> Whole grain rye bread is one of the recipes in trail grazing that takes the longest. Trail grazing is packed with other recipes that take as little as maybe three minutes to throw together and cook in the microwave even. And I mean, just in the matter of a few minutes, you could have some trail snacks ready for that day hike that you're going to take that very morning or to get ready for a backpacking trip. And you need some trail food, the stuff that you munch on between breakfast and dinner. Well, these 40 recipes in trail grazing, many of them are super fast recipes. And like this Volkorn Brat whole grain rye bread recipe, almost all of the recipes use whole food ingredients and a good mix of fat, protein, carbohydrates, good nutritional value in these recipes. So we'll have the recipe for Volkorn Brat in today's episode show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 162. Or if you want to grab the whole book, Trail Grazing, then check out thefirst40miles.com slash book, or just look it up on Amazon or iTunes. And we'll leave you today with a little bit of trail wisdom. This is from a book of modern scripture called Doctrine and Covenants, and it says, For the earth is full, and there is enough, and to spare. And that's exactly how I felt when we went out mushroom hunting. There was so much out there. It was all so varied and different, and I just felt like there was this whole other world out there of things that were growing 
just for us to enjoy. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Check out our new cookbook, Trail Grazing, on Amazon or iTunes. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. have all been mushroom hunting today and <laughs> turn off that radio <laughs> put that in the bloopers that's like our i'll put you in the bloopers <laughs> is there a reason you have a bandana on your head like a hippie because we're in oregon <laughs> you look like a hippie that's what I said. <clears throat> get your coughs and sniffies out <laughs> Oh, it's not weird. It's delicious.